two months now into this church calendar year of Matthew's gospel being the one we read most Sundays at worship. Two months in, and Jesus has so far been quoted in Matthew as publicly saying a grand total of one thing. That being the thing we heard him say last week when he actually echoed the thing John the Baptist had been running around saying, that being, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. The word repent, I told you last week, literally means to turn, but to be fully understood, biblically speaking, that repentant turning needs to be understood multi-directionally, as in turning from sin to then turn toward the mercy and grace and love of the Savior of sinners, then to turn again by turning toward your neighbor to be his mercy and grace and love alive and at work in God's sin-blighted world. As it turns out, that very same thing can be sounded, that same theme can be sounded, not using the language of repentance, but using the image of another um, prominent Epiphany season theme, that being the theme of light shining in the darkness, as in the story that the Epiphany season began with, the story of those magi following the star's light to Bethlehem, there to find that child who is the light, who is the light, light shining in the darkness with divine light, with O holy light, light in the prophetic glow of which the prophet Isaiah had said, come Israel, come all nations of the earth, come to the light that has come, and then come, come Israel, come all, come Christ church, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Turn from the sin, the ways of sin to turn toward God's ways, turn from the ways of darkness to turn and walk in the light. Today, and actually for three weeks in a row now, we will hear Jesus finally open his mouth publicly and, and put some meat on those bones of that theme as explicitly he starts to tell us what that looks like, what that sounds like, what that acts like, what that turns like, what that shines like. As starting today and for three weeks in a row, uh, our gospel readings will be excerpts from his Sermon on the Mount. If, if Easter were a little later, we would actually spend five weeks in a row on the Sermon on the Mount, which would be great fun. But Easter is what it is, so we'll get as far as we get. Here's an epiphany season suggestion. I'm a Lutheran pastor, by the way, so I can only make it a suggestion. I'm not of this tradition that I can say you must do this, and you would, because you are gathered by grace, and you know there's nothing you must do because you are loved by God. Here's a suggestion. You could do this. By way of walking in the light, by way of turning toward the ways of God, read the Sermon on the Mount. It is three chapters long, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Read it straight through in one setting. It'll take you 20 minutes. Then wait a day or two or five and read it straight through again in one setting. It'll take you another 20 minutes. Then wait another day or two or five and start reading it again. But this time, stop. Every time you hear it, in one way or another inviting you to do so. And there's all kinds of ways scripture can do that. It can, it can make you go like this. It can make you uh, confused. It can make you have a light bulb. There's all kinds of ways scripture invites you to stop. But start reading the Sermon on the Mount that third time and stop 
every time it invites you to do so. And reflect. This will take you, well, full disclosure. When the light that is the light of something like the Sermon on the Mount starts poking around and shining in your heart and in your mind and in your soul and in your life, you may in this lifetime never get done reflecting, which is fine because remember it is light that we're talking about, light that is meant to be reflected. Come back next week, by the way. That's a theme Jesus is going to work with. When you read and reread and reflect on the Sermon on the Mount, let me tell you something. It will bless you. It will comfort you. It will challenge you almost without end. And I am confident that I think I can assure you it at times will confusingly and even completely baffle you which of course it must do. It must baffle. It can't not baffle. For what Jesus is describing in it are the ways of the kingdom of heaven, which again and again turn out to be the exact upside down, bafflingly opposite of the ways and means of the kings and kingdoms of this world. Which, of course, is what Paul was talking about in that reading that Reese read for us today from 1 Corinthians when he said that the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world and the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. Because why? Well, ultimately and finally, because the wisdom of the world says that power is found in the ways and means of those who dispense death upon others by, for example, crucifying them. The wisdom of God, on the other hand, and my goodness, do I ever mean on the other hand, and my goodness, do we ever need another hand? The wisdom of God, Paul says, says that power that is the real thing, not a frightened thing, is found in the ways and means of he who would die willingly for others, shining with love's light in the dark, as there he is crucified. Which takes us to our gospel reading for today, which are the opening words of the upside-down world of the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. Please stand. Saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. These opening words of the Sermon on the Mount have come to be uh, known and cherished as the Beatitudes, uh, which is the Latin word for, for, for blessed. So it's the blesseds, the Beatitudes. And they are cherished, and they are beautiful, and they do comfort and bless. But as I mentioned earlier, um, they nevertheless do, can, can seem to be sometimes quite baffling. For at the very least, they surely do seem to come loaded with assumptions and values that surely are the very exact upside-down opposite of so many assumptions and values that you see at work in the world. So much so that one can even find oneself wondering, if it's okay to wonder something like this, one can even find oneself wondering if these words are even, well, here as we live our lives in the world, are these words even true? Entirely? Are the meek, as opposed to the harsh, the brass, the manipulative, the calculating, are the meek truly the ones who will inherit the earth? I mean, Jesus spoke these words 2,000 years ago. How's that been going so far? And is it truly the, the poor in spirit, not the puffed up and proud in spirit, whose rewards are kingdoms? And is, it, is doing the totally right thing and then being totally dumped on for it really something to get excited about, rejoice and be glad? And is being merciful, kind, generous, forgiving, in ways that people haven't done anything to deserve, is that really better than a world where people get exactly what they deserve? And does hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I mean, would, for example, um, spending some time in the coming weeks reading and reflecting on the Sermon on the Mount, does that truly fill you more full than spending that same amount of time, I don't know, browsing and buying with Amazon Prime? Now, answering questions like that becomes less baffling, at least if, if you're a believer, uh, when you realize and remember that though these Beatitudes are meant to guide and direct and shape and inspire the way we live our lives, they are, my goodness, they are surely meant to guide and direct and shape and inspire the way we live our lives. But that said, unlike the Ten Commandments, which are meant to do the very same thing, the Beatitudes do not address us primarily as commandments, but rather as promises. 
Promises which promise, for example, if, that, if, if you do what is right and are, are attacked uh, or wronged as a result, the, he whose rightness is the rightness of forever will see you through and in the end he will make all things right for forever. Promise of his promise that when you mourn in this life, there is one who is there with you to comfort you, to comfort you with his presence every moment of your life, but comfort you too with a reminder that he's the one who raises the dead unto eternal life. Promises which promise you that the kingdom of heaven won't wait until heaven to reveal itself to you, but will rather come to you and dwell richly in you here and now when you not with pride in your heart, but with humility of heart, know that life isn't just about you. Because if you think it is, then you are poverty stricken. No matter the size of your stock portfolio, know that the Tao is even starting to think about 30,000. Promises which promise that every time you are merciful to others, mercy in its own merciful way is heaped back upon you in the process. Promises that promise that when you do the things that make for peace, even if the world fights you along the way, you are smiled upon by your Father in Heaven whose gift is that peace that passes all understanding, that peace that the world cannot give. Promises which promise that when you are meek, which is to say gentle, of heart, which of course is to say weak in the eyes of some on earth, you are in fact being strong with strength that nothing on earth is stronger than for he who has already ascended the throne of thrones of the king of kings is not the wolf but the lamb. Promises which promise not only that the pure of heart will see God but promise too that through the blood of the Lamb and the forgiveness of sin, purity of heart is a gift of God for you. All of those truths and more are truths that here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does not command are true. All those truths and more are truths that Jesus here at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount begins by promising are true. And in so doing, he turns the world with its playbooks full of alternative truths absolutely upside down. Which absolutely should not come as an absolute shock, really. Because, of course, in the end, promises are as true as those who speak them. And whereas the world seems mightily entrenched in its determination to bless those kings who climb to the top of its mountains to rule with commandments and intimidation and executive orders and military might as needed and a few corrupting, few side dishes of corruption and ruthlessness on the side, King Jesus is a king who would prove undissuadable in his determination to climb to the top of Calvary's holy mountain to rule it with give it literally 
everything you've got, love. And hate, wise in the ways of the world. And with hammers and nails in hand, and tombstones too, would on that Friday sneer and say, how's that love thing working out for you, Jesus? It would be the third day before he'd answer. And his answer would be, love worked out heavenly. Sisters and brothers, the Beatitudes, they are not alternative facts, they are an alternative worldview. What do you think? Are they true? If yes, then this from the prophet Micah is also true. He has told you, O mortal, he has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly, walk humbly with your